You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on our industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Anna, how are you doing this week? Great. How are you? I'm doing excellent, and I would like to take the opportunity to thank uh, new listeners, Joe and Tom. Actually, I'm not sure if they're new, but I know they're listeners and they enjoy it. So yeah, okay. Just want to give them a special shout out. Um, Jeff, how are you doing this week? Good. Glad to have Joe and Tom on board. <sighs> right? Thanks, Joe and Tom. You I, To all which, the Joes and Toms out there. Yeah. To everyone that Most emails, <laughs> to everyone that emails uh, their feedback into the show, I really enjoy all of it. It's just really mm-hmm. cool to hear like yeah. uh, your thoughts on the show and ways that we could possibly change it or what you like about it. So keep those coming and we'll keep sending out t-shirts because we're easy marks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <clears throat> well, let's jump into our first story this week. All right. Hundreds of FedEx packages found in the woods. While many families were enjoying a Thanksgiving feast, an Alabama sheriff was in the woods sorting through a river of FedEx boxes. Now, the river is the river. Now, the sheriff is trying to piece together how some 400 packages wound up in the forest. FedEx sent a team of drivers and trucks to reclaim the packages. The site is about 30 miles north of Birmingham, and FedEx is working with the authorities to unpack the situation. Jeff, your thought on the river of abandoned packages, likely all Christmas presents, found in the woods. Did you say this is something we need to unpack? Yeah, sometimes you just got to fire well, past those. Done. I was actually thinking the same thing. You took my pun from me. <laughs> Very good. Anna is booing us. Um, there is a lot to look at here, though. I think there's a lot of different dynamics. Obviously, we've been talking about supply chain. You can't get away from that. And it looks like this driver was definitely maybe a little stressed, yeah. um, overworked a little bit. I know Anna's going to talk more about that. One of the things that I looked at, when you do look at just some of the the different competing elements here when, with the driver himself, who they did find out was responsible for dumping these packages in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, FedEx drivers are not paid all that great. Uh, and I was guess I was kind of surprised. You know, the average is about 45000 a year, topping out at about fifty. Yeah. which I just would have thought with everything that's going on right now with the labor shortage – yeah. That would have been a little bit higher. Little I, I guess I expected a little bit more than mm-hmm. that potentially. So you can see some of the frustration mounting there. Getting away from that a little bit, I was kind of curious how this would work from a legal perspective. Mm. Obviously, he's going to be in trouble just with his job. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I don't yeah. think that's going to bode well for him long term at FedEx. But who's legally responsible here? This isn't like the U.S. post office that's right. delivering oh, this true. stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you've got all this, is this something where – is, is FedEx going to go after this guy and press charges potentially? Mm. Are all those people who sent those packages, do they have some sort of legal claim with mm-hmm. FedEx if those packages are damaged or not delivered? I'm sure FedEx is going to do everything they can to either get them delivered, make restitution, whatever, or you would hope anyway because they've got an, a ton of coverage on this. A yeah. ton. Um, so I think it's kind of interesting there because obviously if you're dealing with regular mail, that is a federal, a federal offense. Crime, yeah. And that – this guy would have really been in hot water. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could be looking at some serious prison time. So I'm kind of curious to see how it all 
kind of boils out there. Yeah. Just because it's very gray in terms of who's legally responsible for a package. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Once you give it to somebody like a FedEx or a USPS or whomever to, to ship it out. Yeah. Um, that's a really interesting point because it reminded me of that story of the postal worker. Remember they, remember they found like thousands of envelopes in their car. Yeah. They yeah. were opening yeah. them, taking every gift card and cash yeah, out, but leaving one. all the checks. And they still, for some reason, left all the evidence piled in their car because <laughs> they're very smart criminals. But um, you're right. That was the post office. And this is FedEx. So I wonder what kind of charges yeah. this person is looking at. Um, Anna, what were your thoughts on uh, the FedEx problem in Alabama? Um, I think it was pretty obvious, like as a theory, that this was the driver. So when that came to light, um, I think we were all like, yeah, duh. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. To me, this reeks of desperation um, on behalf of this worker, possibly. I mean, it's a strategy that you can't get away with for very long, right? We know that the missing packages would very quickly be tied back to this one person. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, all these companies, these major logistics carriers have like very um, sophisticated tracking methods, the scanning and all that stuff. Um, But it did bring me kind of back to our discussion that we had last week. Um, where we were exploring the legal implications in that case where that contract driver um, that was working as a third party for Amazon deliveries, right. we ended that um, person and paralyzed them and, and the ensuing lawsuit was blaming Amazon for what they cited as really like unsustainable expectations for delivery rates. So mm-hmm. I've heard f- from friends who have done delivery um for I don't know which carrier, but just hearing um, about how difficult that job was to meet the obligations, what their expectations were. Um, you have a ton of variables that you're dealing with that can cause unexpected delays and thus like more stress to try to get that route done. A lot of that's out of your control, you know. Mm-hmm. And as Jeff said, it's not the highest paid job for how physically demanding yeah. it is and then maybe how stressful to boot. On top of that, we know there is a shortage of workers right now especially drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there has been a massive increase in e-commerce spending, thus a massive increase in demand for deliveries. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like if this FedEx driver is under duress daily, like, do we have any sympathy for him or her? Like, I'm not saying that you dump the boxes in a ravine, yeah. but to me, like, this could be a very publicized incident of someone just like really reaching their limit, like oh, maybe yeah. like panicking yeah. I don't know. Like we can envision this person as like a lazy jerk who doesn't care about your Christmas presents. <laughs> no, I mean, or I don't know. I just I, I feel like it's more jerk. nuanced than that. You yeah, know? no, I don't like lazy jerk uh, doesn't dump them in the woods. Like person at their breaking point doing like go, and having burnout or flan- that it sounded like burnout to me. To me, like a too. person that mm-hmm. just loses it and is just like you know what, toss them in the woods. Like yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and complete like doesn't necessarily have a complete breakdown, but you know it's sort of. Uh, it's it's kind of cyclical, right? And right. we actually have a couple of in-house experts when it comes to FedEx. Mm-hmm. A couple of our oh. sales guys actually used to work at FedEx. So yeah. they give us a little more insight sort of on the inner workings here a little bit. Mm-hmm. And what happens is this guy is actually not probably a FedEx employee. Mm. They contract out the routes. Okay. So FedEx employs somebody, the contractor, to run these routes. They sell them or rent them or however you want to describe it. And then whoever is contracted to run the route hires the drivers. So you can imagine how all of this flows downhill, right? You've got FedEx telling the contractor of this route saying, you need to get more stuff out the door. The stuff's backing up. We need more deliveries. That then goes to the drivers. They get this frustration. This is what happens. So it kind of flows downhill, and it's not 
going away. Yeah. <laughs> there was a report in New York Times article. There was another location about 75 miles south of this one mm. where they found another 20 packages dumped in the woods from Man. FedEx. So you can see these folks getting frustrated. I think it's also representative of the fact that the labor pool is tight. Mm. It's competitive and potentially at times not always able to hire the person you want. You're hiring the person that'll take the job, yeah, that's me, yeah. which means maybe you're not able to vet as much as you would in the past. Mm-hmm. Not trying to be completely unsympathetic to somebody who's at their breaking point, but I think we have to be careful not to justify the end behavior. Too. Oh, Jeff, I did not, not I did not think that you were going to be on board with my take on this at all. So the fact that you even gave play to it a little bit, I appreciate. It's the holiday season, you know. <laughs> Thank you. You're softening so, a little you're bit. You're so generous. I mean, to your point, uh, Jeff, it, it seems like it'll be exactly like the Amazon situation where because this is a third-party contractor, you know, FedEx might be able to just be like, hey, it's not our bad. Yeah, except it's their name on the box. Yeah. <laughs> and it's sure. all over the headlines and stuff. So legally, and that's where it's kind of interesting, right? Because yeah. legally, technically, it's not really FedEx's yeah. problem, mm-hmm. but it's definitely their problem oh, yeah. in dealing with it. So, um, you know, Anna, when you're talking about how hardcore the tracking is now, mm-hmm. were, I wonder if the boxes were, you know, marked as delivered or, you know, did the tracking still just say like in transit? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Who knows um, how much like manipulating of that timeline the driver was able to do by marking things delivered and maybe buying some time before they were discovered. Mm -hmm. Um, As we were looking into this, um, you know, there's, I don't remember the number, Jeff, how many millions of packages delivered per day, Um, you know, not by just FedEx, but, but all the carriers, how, difficult it actually is to drill down to like 600 yeah. packages you think that's a lot oh and yeah but then it's in the grand scheme of what's going on every day it's not no it's yeah. just it's the one the, truckload the new york times that same new york times article estimates about 1.7 million packages every day are lost or stolen oh my now goodness. you think in today's climate a lot more are being stolen unfortunately but mm-hmm. still that's mm-hmm. incredible the porch pirates a lot I of pirates was, out there yeah i thought this was just clearly a rival gang of amazon drivers <laughs> You know, just mixing mm. it up in the woods. Just yeah. like, not on our route, buddy. Yeah. Um, well, I was interested because the Blount County Sheriff's Office has actually been posting a lot of updates uh, as they happen on their Facebook page. And <clears throat> they said that investigators have now determined that the driver dumped at least six different times, uh, making FedEx a victim of six different theft or property cases is how they're going to process it. As of right now, they're looking at 450 individual victims uh, that were affected by this. And it's so, and they just wrote, this will not be an easy or fast case to close. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Well, do you think there's some pressure then to also set a precedent Mm -hmm. to deter future drivers from taking this same approach? I mean, Mm -hmm. yes, but I don't know. I mean, maybe it winds up because I'm sure with that many packages, the, total value of everything there is going to make it, you know, quite a crime, unless maybe it's just a lot of, you know, cell phone cases that didn't make it. There were some cool follow-up stories too. People getting like the wrong package due to this whole situation. They're trying to deliver some of these packages. People actually like delivering them to the right people or Mm. going there and getting stuff and helping sort out. So, you know, a little bit of a positive um, portion of the the story anyway. Well, and the sheriff said he's asking for patience uh, from our citizens as the investigators work through the case. Every one of his posts have had hundreds of comments, hundreds of comments. The most recent one was more than 660. And one commenter in particular said, 
Please pass my thanks to your staff, the investigators, and those at the district attorney's office who are attempting to sort through this mess. This holiday presentation was on nobody's wish list. By the way, well stated. If you find my Jeep replacement parts, please let me know. Was <laughs> oh. <laughs> that Eric Sorensen? <laughs> it was just perfect. It's like, thank you for all the hard work you're doing. I have some very unique custom Jeep parts <laughs> somewhere in the area. They are in the woods. Yeah, they're still in the woods. Somebody get a dog out there. Under some leaves. <laughs> really hoping everyone, there's, I mean, no one's, not everyone's going to be satisfied, but hopefully most people are. All right, let's move on to our next most popular story this week. Engineering company owner gets prison in explosion probe. Lauren Kim Jacobson is headed to prison after pleading guilty to charges stemming from an explosion at his Idaho tanker testing and repair company about three years ago. A KCCS employee was welding during a cargo tanker repair when the flame pierced the tanker and ignited residual material inside. The employee was severely injured in the blast. During the OSHA investigation, Jacobson lied to investigators and made several false claims. For example, he said he had a meter to detect explosive fumes and said that the person injured was just an observer, not an employee. As part of the plea deal, Jacobson admitted to repairing cargo tankers without certification and that he had employees go into tankers to conceal illegal repairs. He also faked test results. He was sentenced to one month in prison, five months home confinement, and three years of supervised release, along with a $15,000 fine. Jeff, your thoughts on this story and whether or not the penalty or punishment fit the crime. Well, I think the guy got off way easy. Okay. okay. I've got a little a little bit of background here because actually before, right before I started college, I actually worked in a manufacturing facility that produced these types of cargo tanks. Mm. Oh, cool. Um, I worked on a seam welder and basically the crew and I that I worked with, we took these huge uh, pieces of sheet metal, mm-hmm. put them through the seam welder. And then my job was to basically use something, I don't know, it kind of was like half of a lawnmower had a grinding belt on it that I would then go back and forth to grind off the welds and then use another polishing belt to get it finished. And one of the things that I'll remember the most is when I was learning how to do this is the supervisor who was there would go through and say, look, you can't even have this little bit of a ridge here when you grind this weld out. Mm. This has to be completely flat. When you polish it, you need to be careful of this. And then Mm -hmm. once the welds were removed, because we would do on, you know, five or six sections of these to get the tank. Yeah. you would go through, and we didn't have any high-tech equipment. This is 20-some years ago. So yeah. I was down on my hands and knees with a flashlight and a uh, Sharpie oh. circling all the pits or anything else that could wow. be some sort of potential issue. Because if you've got chemicals going in here, that could help degrade or play a role in degrading the structure of the tank. Or not be completely washed out. Exactly. If there was food-grade materials in there, yeah. then that would be a potential place that you couldn't clean, mold could grow, things like that. So the quality controls, even 25 years ago when I was doing this stuff, were pretty stringent. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of work that went into making sure the insides of these tanks were where they needed to be. Now, so for him to talk about the things that he did, first of all, be a better liar. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. if you've got an OSHA person there and you're like, yeah, nobody works here. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. I, don't I, I can't have be employees. Res- yeah. I mean, come be a little bit better yeah. than that because that's definitely going to open the door to a bigger investigation. The other thing is to either work, uh, manipulate, 
do anything with these tanks because it was flammable substances that were going to be hauled in these tanks. Yeah. There's a couple of different ASME, that's the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, specifications and certifications that your company needs to have mm -hmm. to do anything with these tanks. Yeah. Especially if you're going to be welding on them yeah. and fixing them. And we're talking about investments that probably run into the tens of thousands of dollars on an annual basis to make sure your workers are certified to do the right stuff here. Mm -hmm. So for him to get off with basically six months of a little bit of inconvenience yeah. and 15 grand, mm -hmm. yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah. This makes OSHA look weak. Mm-hmm. And it's really disappointing to see this as the end result after everything that this individual did to potentially defraud his customers because he was not performing the stuff that he was that he was contracted to do. And also the risk that yeah. he was putting everybody at mm -hmm. when they were putting fluid, putting materials into these tanks and then trusting that they were going to be discharged through those valves correctly because yeah. that's another ASME mm -hmm. certification that you need to have in order to work on that stuff. That's what stuck out, to, stuck out to me is the sheer amount of risk, not just, I mean, he's lucky that only one employee was severely injured after yeah. all of his wrongdoing. You know, this affects all of his employees, all the employees with every company that's ever hired him. You know, Anna, there are a ton of people that were potentially at risk as a result of his laissez-faire safety uh, approach. Yeah, and it's actually it's inaccurate that this was the only employee who was injured. Oh, actually, okay. the this man himself, Lauren Jacobson, the CEO of this company, um, he suffered from severe burns as well. He was oh. there when oh, this okay. took place. Um, he was hospitalized in critical condition at the okay. time, as was this other employee. Um, the explosion reportedly hurled fragments of the tanker as far as 50 yards away, and the blast was so powerful that it shook homes more than a mile away. Wow. So it was a oh my pretty gosh. serious explosion. Um, so the report that I read said that the explosion actually nearly killed this man okay. who was being now prosecuted, um, and of course his colleague. Uh, I wonder what kind of shape this guy is in being in his mid-60s and suffering that kind of injury. Right. So I don't know. Maybe that played into the sentencing, um, mm -hmm. but I have that's pure speculation. I have no idea. Um, that said, it is hard to feel sorry for him. I mean, after all you kind of— I mean, of, it's getting easier now, Anna. Well, but— but again, I mean, you, the laundry list yeah. of things that he did and all of the the deception. I mean, it's weird to me actually that Wilf, that OSHA didn't classify any of these infractions as willful. They Correct. were all as serious, serious. violations. Yeah. Um, so much of this is clearly premeditated. I don't get it. Like mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned um, his his trying to deceive OSHA by saying that that person was an observer yeah he knew what he was doing because he knew that if he could claim that he had no employees he was not subject to yeah. that osha directive yeah that's very premeditated that's like very conniving I um mean, well he was hiding people i mean literally yeah. hiding people inside these tanks and so you couldn't see what so you they couldn't were see what they were doing yeah. exactly because he knew and you know he faked numbers in there he was not performing tests there was just a lot of things that he did wrong it was none of this was accidental this was not yeah. negligence in my opinion this was willful um it made me think of joe bayless the fake engineer that we talked about mm -hmm. um a couple weeks ago who got hit with the 481 million dollars in restitution three years in federal prison for the dc solar ponzi scheme and it just kind of showed me the disparity in sentencing based on who the victim is mm -hmm. you know especially or uh the amount you know, whether or not it's a uh, uh, 
physical harm that you cause to a few people or financial harm that you cause to a few very powerful people. Um, True. Or who the judge is or who the jury is. No, agreed. But um, I got to say, like, I did not know that he was severely injured. So, I mean, maybe some of the things he said to OSHA during the investigation, maybe he just wasn't of sound mind. I don't know. It was a plea deal. So, I mean, it was before it got to court and all that. And what bothers me the most is OSHA is always about setting an example. Mm-hmm. This is if you do this, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are yeah. operating. This is what's going to happen. And in this instance, and this is this is a little bit unique because it's not a direct parallel to some of the industrial accidents that we talk about or incidents, I should say that we that we that we discuss. But it's basically him just thumbing his nose up and saying, you know what, I've gotten away with it for how mm-hmm. long? Yeah. I'm just going to keep doing it this way, and we'll see what happens. And that doesn't deter the next guy from doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what's. Be, that's what's just so mind-blowing. We're talking about welding a cargo container that is hauling flammable substances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you really want somebody who's not licensed and not properly trained doing that? You want to follow that guy on the highway? I, that's right. exactly what I was thinking is how many times you're next to that person on the interstate and you just – you assume that that is probably the best-made truck on the road you know, because of the cargo it's carrying. Right. Instead, it looks like one of those trucks that just has all the different – you know, uh, gas canisters in the back, like with one uh, one thing kind of tying them off and they're just kind exactly. of juggled around back there. Anyway, uh, let's move on to our next most popular story. <clears throat> it's a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, boozy Stream clocks in at 1.2% alcohol. A person was hiking near a stream on the island of Oahu in Hawaii when he noticed that it had a funny smell. An independent laboratory found that 1.2% of the water in the stream was booze. The contamination was traced back to Paradise Beverages, the largest alcohol distributor in the state. The leak has stopped and Paradise is working with local authorities to try and figure out the source of the spill. Carol Cox, the environmental activist who reported the smell after being alerted by the hiker, said the contamination is disturbing. He said, quote, it makes you want to pull your hair out, and I don't have much left. And Jeff, that's just a statement that I understand, but uh, it sounds like there's a lot of frustration and kind of repeated behavior in Hawaii here. Yeah, so I did see a follow-up to this. They mm-hmm. did figure out that it was a beer leak from oh, Paradise, okay. mm-hmm. um, or a beer spill, I guess I should say, Okay, which would explain the smell. Okay. If you yeah. could imagine that. That's, that's It sounds like the smell was horrible. Yeah. 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 David, how would you feel especially? I mean, you're such a connoisseur of of the malted beverage. I would be so gross. Uh <laughs> the uh when they described it as it smelled like a bar that had, was wasn't cleaned and opened its doors after being closed for like 4 days. I just like Yuck. really knew that smell. And it brought me to a very specific bar in Austin. I'm just like, yeah, never going there again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely unpleasant, which is so weird. You just imagine, you know, the Hawaiian Islands is such a beautiful tropical place, and then you're hiking along and yeah, smell Yuck. stale beer. Ugh. Pretty gross. What was interesting, and I, I had no idea, like, what this really meant, 1.2%. I mean, I can compare it to beer or other alcohol and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's actually funny, in doing a little bit of research, the actual concern from an environmental perspective wouldn't be to, like, the fish and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's actually all the other organisms that would oh. probably be that would die off because of the basically a lot of the chemicals that are involved in the fermentation process that alcohol mm-hmm. 
that is used to create alcohol. Yeah. Um, it would kill those off. So if you're getting rid of all that other bacteria and other stuff, mm-hmm. that's going to kill the fish. There's it, no fish. There's nothing that eats the fish, so on and so forth. So That is that the was, circle of life, Jeff. Yeah. There you go. thought I could bring it all together. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting. I also found out that there's actually um, a little bit of alcohol in a lot of everyday stuff that we eat just oh. because of the natural fermentation process. Hamburger buns, like mm. larger hamburger buns. Yeah. It's like... 0.6% of that is alcohol. There's actually 0.6% alcohol in that. Man. Um, Getting wasted bananas, these burgers. Like 0.5%. Really? What? Yeah, my kids, I give those to my children. Right? Yes. They were so, so drunk before they went to school oh, this morning. So if crazy. you um, do not believe me, you can visit this site that I'm definitely going to be going back to. Let me see if I can find it here now. <laughs> um, Yes, steadydrinker.com offered this information. Steadydrinker.com. Right? It's, it's worth checking out. <laughs> so if you it just, is worth checking out. Like uh, if you're hungover and you just got to stay straight, just pick up a pack of buns. Like, well, they're, they're, considered, <laughs> they're considered non-alcoholic because it's below 0.5%. Yeah. So if it's below 0.5, it's considered non-alcoholic, which actually these buns, depending on the size, because it's 1.28 grams per 100 grams. Mm-hmm. of bun okay. has that the alcohol percentage. So if it's a big bun, could have some booze in it. Well, all right. So it's like, what's the proof? <laughs> <laughs> so that would be about two and a half proof. Two and a half proof bun. The, the yeah. boozy bun. Um, Beer and brat. There you go. <laughs> I mean, Anna, I kind of joked about how at 1.2%, this stream was, you know, a good NA or low alcohol beer, which is just all the rave right now. Um, you know, what were your thoughts on paradise's accident and the effects it has on the ecosystem. Yeah, I don't think that like fish really drink like low alcohol beer, so I don't think it's the rage with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, you never know. You know, you don't, don't put the fish in a box. I do, that's true. Mm-hmm. Be be who you want to be, <laughs> fish. Uh, no, Carol Cox, the activist who you mentioned earlier, who kind of spearheaded this investigation, um, described the contamination as deleterious to the fish. So I don't know if he's referring to the, you know, their ecosystem in yeah. general or if like they're really just getting bombed. But um, <laughs> like, I don't know, he really describes the local area as not practicing what Hawaiians preach about respect for the land and the water. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it doesn't seem clear that the company um, Paradise was even aware of the fact that their waste was finding its way there. Um, The investigators described finding a completely dysfunctional storm drain. Mm. So, like, was the facility improperly connected to the storm system or, like, like, did the workers know? I mean. Yeah, it definitely it was hard to tell if the company was being coy or if um, they were legitimately they have they legitimately had no idea. Right. Exactly. I mean, you could that seems maybe reasonable that they Mm -hmm. just didn't know Um, the workers didn't know somebody knew. At some point, but like, well, I know, it also seemed weird that it was being investigated by the Department of Health, but the drain pipe was owned by the Department of Transportation. So I'm sure there's because it went of, under the highway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of regulatory agencies that maybe not drop, helping things, drop the ball or didn't investigate where they should have. But, um, um, it's, you know, potentially they were somehow connected to this storm drain system and they didn't, they were just dumping stuff down a drain. They didn't know necessarily. Yeah. Um, but I also was wondering like why so much beer was being dumped at a distributor, you know, like yeah. they're not a processor, they're a distributor. So what hap- what is happening here that they're dumping all this product? Maybe it's just expired product. 
Maybe. Expired damage. I agree. I think what was probably happening is they were dumping stuff, didn't realize the impact it was having. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was right in their backyard. They weren't really trying to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, exactly. It's like they can't would, see them across the I road. mean, what, what you would normally see in these situations, if it was a little bit more malicious or trying to be deceiving, yeah. they would, you know, mm-hmm. be different. But yeah, just kind of weird. The other thing I learned in this is that fish can't really get drunk hmm. because. Anna, you're going to want to hold on to this little nugget of information. Because actually, like, especially up here where it freezes, Mm. in order to stay warm and alive, they actually produce their own internal alcohol. So during the winter, fish are kind of hammered the whole time because (laughs) that's how they stay awake. That's how they stay warm. Oh, man. Or alive, I should say. So fish and my grandfather get it through the winter the exact same way. Um, They figured it out. uh, I, I thought it was interesting that Carol Cox said that he's found everything from paint to cement in area streams as well. So yeah. it seems like there might be some other bad actors in the area. Um, or some infrastructure problems. Uh, true, true. That's, uh, man, he's just spent so much time going after these companies and it turns out that it's all infrastructure. Um, it also made me think of the London beer flood. Now, like, because we've done a lot of accidents that are at uh, beer manufacturers or other uh alcohol beverage manufacturers. And there have been some crazy stories. Um, I had never heard about this London beer flood from October, 1814. Are you guys familiar? Oh, really? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah I know. Flood of 14. Yeah. I, I was yeah, born that year. Yeah. I know a lot about that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. By the way, I've seen Anna give you a lot of looks, but when you mentioned the great London beer flood, yeah. the look she gave you, I think was a new one. Kind of like, where, what, what, what are, are we doing, doing here? <laughs> Just, well, ta- I was looking into, because for we cover a lot of spills and I was going to talk about like smaller accidents and it kind of mm. was this escalate. It was this escalation of looking into different beer spills. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> the history of beer spills. Who yeah. Thought? Jeff, thought? Jeff, 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 you just told us that fish get drunk in the winter. I don't know if you have a place here to be like making fun of David's uh, looking at past beer floods. Escalating yeah, no. beer floods. Yeah. yeah. Let, uh, you had your drunk fish tangents. Now give me my beer flood. <laughs> uh, so back in October 1814, as you shall remember, a 22-foot-tall wooden vat of fermenting porter exploded, and it triggered other vessels to break, and it unleashed almost 400,000 gallons of beer oh. that oh my God. blasted through the back wall of this brewery went into a residential area and then it like killed eight people. It was just, oh my gosh. Because like you've heard of, you guys must have, you've heard of the wave of molasses, right? Like the molasses spill that killed a bunch of people. Okay, whatever, just me then. Uh, <laughs> Where is this website of spill? Next week. Oh. Yeah, okay. Yep. Next week we'll do the molasses. Uh, but the brewery was like nearly bankrupted by this event, but you know, it avoided collapse because it just wrote off all this lost beer. But I just couldn't imagine a wave of 400,000 gallons of beer. Just like, what's that now? What, how yeah. That is crazy. How yeah. bad do you think an 1800s beer was? Oh, probably bad. Pro- I mean, they're I don't think all there was bad. a lot of middle ground. Mm-hmm. Like it was probably either really good or just terrible. Yeah. I, I mean, based on my limited experience with beer, mm-hmm. it's all bad. All bad. I think you're a bit biased there, buddy. I am because it's bad. No. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, right. you want to weigh in on this one? Uh, producer Alex. Beer's good. He's pro beer. He's pro beer. Mm, Okay. Shocking. Okay. It's one to one. We don't need a tiebreaker. All right. (laughs) Our next most popular story. If everybody would like to email the podcast to weigh in on this, you can break this tie. That'd be great. Right. Gin drinkers unite. Ship's operator awake for 50 hours before crash. 
At 4.46 a.m. on October 17th, 2020, the Atina oil tanker hit an offshore oil platform in Louisiana and did an estimated $72.9 million in damage, about $72.3 million to the platform and 0.6 to the tanker. When asked why he crashed, the man behind the wheel said, I was tired. He had been awake for more than 50 hours. The NTSB said the probable cause of the accident was the, quote, operating company not ensuring sufficient time for the master's turnover, which resulted in the master's acute fatigue and poor situation situation awareness during an attempted nighttime anchoring evolution. He was really tired. He took over for the previous master in Istanbul because he was having, quote, issues with an inspector for the ship's owners and operators. So he was exhausted operating a vessel he was unfamiliar with. And Anna, that just sounds like a recipe for disaster. This did an insane amount of costly damage and it was so obviously preventable. Mm -hmm. It just feels like a metaphor for the kind of work culture that like Americans are currently trying to escape from this sort of temporary exploitation, productivity at all costs. Like it reminded me of the Frito-Lay workers who were complaining about working 84 hour work weeks just to keep up like hang in there, everybody. Come on, just a few more minutes. We got to we got to dock the boat. Yeah. You know, Um, and the result, again, as we discussed, is pushing people to their absolute breaking point. And we hear all the time about people who are leaving the workforce in droves. They're ghosting their shifts. They're uninterested in doing certain kinds of work for certain employers. And then you see this stuff and you're like, well, yeah, okay." Like, I mean, (laughs) repeatedly where safety and quality of life of workers is sort of shoved to the side, you kind of get why this is happening. And ironically, some of these situations are a result of short staffing already. Yeah. And nobody is there to cover the gap. So they just repeat themselves, just this continuous cycle. I don't know. It's just frustrating to see this kind of stuff happen because you know that this person, this employee was put in a very difficult situation where they felt like they had to just go one step. You know, I just Mm got to got to do this one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, even though that they had said, I don't want to do it. I don't think I can do it. Mm hmm. Well, it was uh, very odd to me because oh, it had to be a, a difficult situation to walk in because he's coming in to take over this tanker mm-hmm. as the other guys just like the heck with all of you. I'm out. See ya. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is um, you're supposed to have, according to the company's own rules, you're supposed to have like a one day turnover mm-hmm. between the old master and the new master. So that way there is like a little bit more of a transition. And Jeff, I feel like. There were a lot of balls dropped here. And one of those was that day transition because maybe he would have had a little more familiarity with the vessel. Uh, He would have had a little more sleep. I mean, I don't know what you guys are like after 50 hours being awake. It is ugly. I can't even fathom being awake for four days. Yeah, that's I don't know. It's kind of mind blowing. I mean, what would have been the worst? What have been the worst situation? Him being awake for that long or just like for an hour turning the boat over to somebody else who had a rudimentary understanding of how to make sure it goes in a straight line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what? What? and that's the situation that he was basically placed in here. Mm-hmm. Also, we've kind of glossed over the fact that they don't call them, like... Captain? Captain. Captain. Yeah. It's a master. Ship master. Yeah. That is, maybe that does sort of offer an indication of the culture of, of the uh, the operation antiquated. there. Um, yeah. A bit of, like you said, an antiquated approach, which means we got to get there, let's go. Yeah. And how many times have we done reports on incidents in a factory where it was somebody who 
didn't have a lot of familiarity mm-hmm. operating a potentially dangerous piece of machinery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's basically what you did here, but the scale is so much larger. And now they're looking at over $200 million in damage mm-hmm. having been done to this platform that I hit. Yeah. Basically because he was trying to park in the dark. Yeah. It's, uh, well, the amount of damage is kind of disputed because the day after the accident, Cox Operating, which is based out of Houston and owns the platform, sued the ship owner for $225 million in damages. Now, according to the NTSB report, it says that it only did $72.9 million in damage, but I'm sure that has to do with all different things, like the fact that the platform's four crew members and technician had to be evacuated by a helicopter. Can't imagine that's cheap. The emergency shutdown of it, repairs. Missed time. Missed time, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The one thing, I mean, if you can look at a bright spot here, is that luckily no pollution or injuries were reported, which as soon as I read the headline of the story, I'm like, all right, where's the earth dying now? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was empty. And I think that played probably a little bit in the role into this person's rush, the the master's rush to get there and not sleep. I mean, oil prices right now are almost twice what they were a year ago. So- there's a desire to capitalize on that as quickly as possible, too. Yeah, the ma- new master took over for the old master, but then after the new master crashed, he was taken over like the accident manager took master took over. Mm. I mean, hard to follow. I'll be honest. When I first read this, I'm like, what was this captain, master, pilot, whatever you want to call him? What was he thinking just being awake for four days? But if that was the environment that he was expected to function in, right. yeah. it goes beyond him. Now, there mm. should have been a little bit of common sense. They're like, I'm piloting this huge craft. I need to get a little rest. But again, I think there's enough blame to go around throughout the organization there. I mean, just over just over a little, like two days. Because he just did like back-to-back full days and made it just into that third day. Okay. I mean, I've tried doing the math like three times because I didn't want to throw that out there and be like, I don't, the four seems high. Yeah, what was I thinking? But yeah, still two like- days. Two seems high. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. if uh, it just reminded me of even when you would pull an all-nighter on a deadline and how- kind of wasted your brain is Ugh, the next day so like, terrible. trying to fight through and you're like there's that uh uh you're impacted by that the rest of the week you're mm-hmm. trying to recover from that exhaustion and this was like when we were like 25 you know like <laughs> yeah. i can't well, imagine an actual adult doing one plus this. he's sitting there looking at the water mm-hmm. yeah for two days not four yeah and then and in the dark yeah. you know it's uh a lot of uh a lot of bad things going on here all right let's move on to our most popular story this week Musk says rocket engine issues threaten to bankrupt SpaceX. I know you guys have been missing the Musk talk, so let's let's get let's back to it. Who's this guy again? I don't know. He's a big guy on Twitter. Ellen. Big on Twitter. Interesting. Musk. <clears throat> the day after Thanksgiving, Ellen Musk ordered his employees <laughs> back to their posts in Hawthorne, California, in order to address a, quote, disaster with a new rocket ship engine. In the email, Musk said the company faces a, quote, genuine risk of bankruptcy if the matter isn't resolved. The problem is with the Raptor, the methane engine that was supposed to power the Starship spacecraft to the moon and beyond. The issue stems from production, though Musk didn't give specifics as to where or how. If Raptor production isn't high enough to launch the company's larger next-generation Starlink communication satellites on starships at least once every two weeks in by 2022, it will put SpaceX in financial jeopardy. And Jeff, I know that financial jeopardy sounds like unbelievable with a Musk-run operation, 
but it looks like they're looking at a, at a bad hand here. So I think this podcast overall has now taught us two things. Mm. The first thing we've learned, I think, is that making cars is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Can we agree on that? Yes, like all yes, these we startups, can. you know, yeah. they've mm-hmm. struggled. The other thing I think we're now learning is um, <clears throat> rockets that send cargo and people into outer space are expensive, guys. They cost a lot. So like when stuff blows up, when you try to launch it or when you try to bring it back down and recover it and mm-hmm. it blows up, maybe it's worth more than just a cynical tweet in terms of addressing that. But Jeff, like, you wouldn't want to do that like multiple times in a row, right? Uh, not if it was like going to cost my company going bankrupt. Maybe not. So it's just interesting because this is like a huge 180 for Musk from what we've heard before. Mm-hmm. I think maybe this came from... I think maybe this came from the Musk Thanksgiving celebration where they were all around the table talking about the things that have gone on this year. And maybe, you know, Elon's mom kind of turned over and be like, you know, I'm so proud of you, everything mm-hmm. you've done. And then you've got like the social media influencer wannabe cousin over in the corner being like, all right, Ellen, nice job. When are you going to get that Starlink thing going? Mm-hmm. So he gets frustrated because, you know, he just got called out and mm-hmm. he's like, I'm going to have everybody on that line tomorrow. <laughs> So Spencer over there can stop talking trash. Yeah. Jeff, See, this is a good narrative. I like it. Yeah. Because he did. He sent the email out on Black Friday. Yeah. So you know there had to be something at Thanksgiving. Somebody's just giving him too much crap and he just couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> He's just like, I'm going to show these guys. It'd be kind of uh, like if your, if your brother was yeah. like, after your dad's like, David, the podcast is sounding really good. And your brother goes, did you see that one headline? Mm. <laughs> There's a typo in there. I can't believe you did that. Yeah. What would be the first thing you do? Uh, I would let it roll right off my back <laughs> and not address it on my phone immediately. Exactly. Um, I had a very similar Thanksgiving narrative, but for me, it was more of a, you know, he was, he said he was upset that it ruined his first weekend off in a long time. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe, but as a person who has worked and lived with and been raised by workaholics. Mm -hmm. It also sounds like the type of work emergency by someone that just might rather be in the office. (laughs) We're like, he's sitting at Mm -hmm. that Thanksgiving dinner and he's got his family and the cousin Spencer, I think he called him. (laughs) He's got to get away from Spencer. (laughs) Yeah. Spencer and Clayton were there. And uh, it's just like, you know what, guys, I got to get out of here because... My rocket ship's broken. We got yep, a space emergency. It. My, <laughs> it's a space <laughs> emergency. Uh, and Anna, that just seems like the more realistic of the two scenarios Maybe. is the, the space emergency. To me, the biggest eye roll is just how like the world's richest human has really been complaining about money a lot lately. And I find that sort of annoying. Yeah. Like, all right, dude. Um Get it out of your system, I guess. I don't know. Like Andy says this in the video, uh, um, but I think like take this with a grain of salt. Like he loves drama. Elon Musk, not Andy, um, loves drama. <laughs> yeah, Andy's all right with it. Andy too. does not love drama. Yeah. Um, I don't know. And he just has like Elon Musk has a history of making what turn out in the end to be sort of exaggerated claims. Mm. I give this one like a meh. Um, <laughs> And to, what's, what's the five star version of that? Like? Yeah. Uh, to Jeff's point, though, I think it's a big shift from, you know, like his sort of cavalier treatment of like one explosion after another in the name of testing, which was not very long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. This is maybe a hot take, guys. I don't know if people agree with me on this or not, but I'm going to say it. I wonder if at some point people with a lot of money invested in Tesla, SpaceX, Boring, Neuralink, all that stuff, um, will get tired of Elon Musk juggling all this stuff at once. And I say that because I don't want to disparage his efforts. I mean, I know he's worked hard. He's a very innovative thinker. Um, This stuff wouldn't exist without him. But 
Like how many Fortune 500 companies have a CEO that moonlights as the CEO of a completely different company? And another one. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Like that's crazy to me. And to me, like, I don't know. I just like you look at a public company like Tesla where he's like multitasking and he says like off the cuff things that like really can send that stock into a nosedive. And I wonder, I mean, he talks about how sleep deprived he is. He's really like multitasking. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I feel like sometimes it it just like makes it difficult to take what he says seriously. But also I feel like maybe there's a liability there. And I wonder if like potentially some of these board members at some point or stockholders or whatever are going to get fed up with that. It's, I think you achieve a certain level of being untouchable when you are the self-made richest man in the world. Sure. And so, and, but yeah. I mean, I mean, I get it. Yeah. Like if you're a board member, you want to protect the company, but it's also going to be hard to, you know, go against the guy that has constantly run up against the greatest challenges in like the biggest industries and somehow overcome them. I mean, uh, we've had some of the skeptics on the website just be like, you know, some people are either very pro Elon Musk and believe in what he's doing. And some are just like, he's going to come out as the biggest snake oil salesman mm-hmm. in the history of American industry. And I don't think snake oil salesman. I don't think that at all. But um, and I, I like I've always respected his innovative mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done a lot of really cool stuff and pushed things forward that other people couldn't have got off the ground. However, yeah. I do think he is handling too much. At yeah, once. I think he's a genius. But from a social and communication perspective, mm-hmm. he definitely falls down. But when you're that good at so many things, you probably think like, I nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I can be the communications <laughs> department, too. Because in this instance, I mean, for him to talk about bankruptcy and SpaceX is kind of out there just because that company was recently valued at $100 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if they needed to open the coffers up and get some other investors, they could. Mm-hmm. It is a privately held company, too. So we don't really know as much about a lot of their R&D expenses and what all those rockets blowing up really cost them. Yeah. What we do know is, and I thought this was actually kind of- $100 million a rocket. Sorry, go ahead. Hundred million or I think it's a hundred million or rocket. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, well he can blow up a couple more of them if he wants <laughs> yeah, to. I let's guess. Keep going. Um, what I thought was interesting too is that valuation in the same article that I read about that being valued at a hundred billion dollars. NASA's annual operating budget is a fourth of that. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, Jeez. a little bit interesting in terms of scale there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, the other thing is talking about when he jokes about the testing failures, testing's different than production. Like when you yeah. test, you expect and anticipate failures and they just happen to be, you know, the largest explosion in that quadrant of the earth at mm-hmm. that day. Right. Um, so I think that's different. If you find a production flaw, you know, that could be critical. I mean, uh, right. I, I think about um, the different companies that I work have worked for um, and you uh, you're working on massive engines for like John Deere or massive engines for other automakers. And if you crash the machine and you ruin that part and they tell you like, yeah, that was like a $50,000 part. And you're just, I mean, it's, yeah. it's incredible. So I can't imagine like what the machine, like if this is a production issue and these are all bad parts, that could that could be incredibly costly. Sure. And I mean, not necessarily, maybe not bankrupts the company, but again, if you don't get on it, that is, I mean- well, absolutely. And there is more competitive pressure now. We mm-hmm. know about Virgin. We yep. know about um, Blue Origin. Blue Origin. Yeah. There's also the ULA, the United Launch Alliance, which is the Boeing Lockheed joint venture. Mm-hmm. And then there's also Rocket Lab, which doesn't get a ton of attention, mm-hmm. but they are quietly doing a ton of this type of private um, satellite launching yeah. stuff. Spin so. launch. 
Spin launch is spin the, launch too. Yeah. Um, so the one thing that I also found interesting was that he wrote all hands on deck unless workers had critical family members or were unable to physically return to Southern California. Anna, what do you think would be an acceptable family matter to not go in the next day or that day? I'm sure I could come up with one. I don't know. I don't think that there is one. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like the culture there is probably going to allow for a lot of exceptions to mm-hmm. this. And that said, everyone I talked to that has worked for Musk in like SpaceX or Tesla stays and wants to stay or they've gone on to like, you know, spin off into the greatest competitor, you know. Um, True. Jeff, what is an acceptable family matter to excuse you from SpaceX the next day? <laughs> Jeez. Um, I think I probably am on a different level than what these folks would. I mean, you need somebody to stay home with the kids, right? I mean, yeah. depending on what it oh, is. Oh, no I mean, way. You got to leave them home Or, alone. Jeff, you there. ate a drunk fish and you got drunk yourself by accident. That'd be a lot of fish. He had a drunken a fish, fish. Sandwich on, on a, a hamburger bun. bun. Yeah. <laughs> Just <laughs> feeling a little, a banana, little, little woozy for yeah. work. Or the second beer. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. In Case You Missed It is where we like to talk about stories that maybe weren't as popular with the uh, readers on the websites, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. Uh, Anna, what is your In Case You Missed It this week? Uh, In Case You Missed It. A lawsuit against Walmart was recently settled to the tune of $2.1 million. Um, Leslie Nurse of Alabama was accused of shoplifting after using a Walmart self-checkout lane that she said froze during her transaction. So her case was dismissed, but she later received letters from a law firm threatening a civil suit if she didn't pay a $200 settlement. Mm. Uh, That's according to the lawsuit. And that was more than the cost of the groceries that she was accused of stealing. Also, again, her case was dismissed. Um, So the case, this lawsuit that she filed went to trial and reportedly featured testimony that Walmart and other major retailers routinely use such settlements in states where the law allows it, Mm -hmm. like Alabama. Yeah. And they say that Walmart has made hundreds of millions of dollars this way. So, yeah. Yeah. Weird. Um, So a jury seemed to agree with the plaintiff and awarded her more than $2 million in damages. The Walmart isn't done with the case, and they say that the verdict isn't supported by the evidence. And that the damages awarded exceed what is allowed by law. So they're going to obviously appeal the decision. But even if this practice is legal, it seems extremely coercive. And all it takes is one very public lawsuit like this one for people to notice. And I think it reflects poorly upon Walmart, whose profits or the revenue in 2020, by the way, was $259 billion. So they did okay. Yeah. So they did okay. And um, I don't know. With a couple hundred million suing people with, you know, that had a malfunctioning self-checkout. Right, exactly. So people who's um, who were accused of shoplifting, but it was dismissed or whatever. So um, I so, will say that it's been... So, sorry, go ahead. Okay, no. So, okay. So they're accused of shoplifting. Is this anyone that's accused of shoplifting? I don't know. I don't okay. know exactly how legally it's allowed to be used, um, okay. but it sounds like some sort of penalty. It sounds like for, there needed to be some sort of restitution mm-hmm. involved with the shoplifting. Uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just, I, I agree. I think that that's the, the premise of this. I don't understand how that functions in a case where the it's it's thrown out. You know, mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense to me. But what bothers me with this is this was somebody's idea. This didn't just like organically happen. Right. Yeah. Somebody saw this 
and put it in place. I mean, hired the law firm to send out the letter, solicit the funds, all of that. That's what bothers me the most. Mm-hmm. Walmart should be ashamed of themselves for letting this type of thing go on. For in their in their scheme of things, two hundred million dollars. Right. That's mm-hmm. nothing. And it it mm-hmm. sounds like other retailers are doing it as well. But the first person to really get like publicly lambasted for this is going to take the brunt of the PR hit. And I think in this case, it's Walmart. I don't see why that's worth the risk. I mean. Yeah. And they, they like, you know, so they've had a rough week. Like I saw earlier in the week, a jury awarded a woman in South Carolina $10 million Whoa. because she was in a Walmart and she stepped on a rusty nail that got lodged <sighs> in her foot and she had to have her leg amputated. Oh, my goodness. So um, Walmart Jeez. is like filing a motion asking the judge to vacate the decision, basically. And they want a new trial. They say that. They, so like they're they've got a, I mean, a, a, a very highly paid legal team, I'm sure, to like deal with stuff but man it's odd to see walmart on the negative side of the press i know usually people speak so positively of yeah, walmart yeah in every case but this time no no it's um and i get it you know i understand why if there was an award you know that some of the things are in place if somebody receives an award that's outlandish you know so you can mm-hmm. kind of fight it and negotiate it down a little bit but I mean, on this one, it definitely seems like, I mean, you're suing a woman who didn't shoplift, who's already probably traumatized by the entire thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. I guess um, $2.1 million is... Uh, yeah, you're almost rooting for it in this point. Yeah. Like, I'm against a lot of these crazy lawsuit settlements, too. But in this one, it's like, man, everything you put her through and the whole premise of why you were allowed to yeah. even like, pursue this... Yeah, you're rooting for it to keep it. I, I would be so – could you imagine the confusion when you receive that letter? Like, uh, wait a second. They're suing me for shoplifting, but I didn't? You know, it's just – I wouldn't even know. Like, I would I would probably throw the letter away. Just mm-hmm. be like, this has got to be junk mail from some ambulance chaser. Right. Well, you know? Yeah, exactly. And good for her that it was a dollar month that was enough to make her question it. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. let's be honest. If it was 50 bucks, yeah. you just, like, write the check so it goes away. Mm-hmm. And she didn't, which good for her. Yeah. I would not write that check to make it go away. I would just be like, first of all, I'd take it and storm into customer service and just like, what are you thinking? And they wouldn't know anything. And <laughs> you so, would storm into customer service? Yeah. Yeah. I like to do that. I've seen well, the little cloud over his head, actually. Yeah. yeah. I would storm into that little cattle corral. Yeah. Wait 45 minutes until I could see somebody at mm-hmm. the counter, you know, stand right behind somebody who's getting some sort of money order that takes 45 minutes because (laughs) they don't have the proper identification or the address as to where it's going. And then casually walk up and unleash, you know. Onto like the 19-year-old behind the counter. Exactly. Sounds good. Yes, who is just so not present, they don't even care. Sounds like an afternoon, David. Yeah. Sounds like it happened last Christmas. Well worth your time. All right. My In Case You Missed It this week, Living Robots Reproduce. I'm going to say that one more time because I knew you were going to pick this story. I knew you were going to pick this story. It's living robots, robots reproducing. And I just not enough people clicked on it because it's robots reproducing. No, I know. There's a lot of questions I have after you said it the third time. Yes. All right. So third time took three times. That must have been it. We should have run it three times. Scientists at three New England universities have discovered an entirely new form of reproduction. Nothing salacious, but tiny computer-designed living robots can replicate themselves over and over. The world's first living robots, called Xenobots, were made made from frog cells as part of a different study released last year. 
But in a new study, researchers from Harvard, Tufts, and the University of Vermont say these xenobots swam around in a tiny dish, gathering hundreds of new cells, then assembled them into a new xenobot that looks and moves just like the original within a few days. Is that not troubling to anybody else? Isn't that just like when you cut a worm in half and you have two worms? <laughs> if the worm was a robot, David, this this story seems kind of boring. Can it sounds like on? a. It's, it just sounds like another frog, isn't it? I'm going to read it again. <laughs> it's not another frog. It is a. It is a team of robots going into the junkyard <laughs> to assemble an army of robots to then overthrow their no, human this masters. Is this is. Crazy. No, it's yeah, creepy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, we're no, just... I completely understand. I'm just going to keep escalating until someone we are just <laughs> escalating. Yeah, we are just letting you do that because mm-hmm. it's funny to us. <laughs> That's all. I want to see how much redder you can get. Oh, is it really? It's just warm in here today. Someone has got the fireplace hot. Hot. Um, so Annie, Anna, Annie, Anna. Annie, where's Annie? <laughs> now I'm red. Now I'm red. <laughs> Jeff, your thoughts on robots replicating <laughs> over and over. So at first it kind of freaked me out, to yeah. be honest, because you're thinking about, you know, Terminator and everything mm-hmm. like yeah. crazy stuff like that. But I think when they talk more about the applications, they're actually talking about medical um, usage, you know, being able to identify harmful bacteria and viruses. Yes. Hey, I think we're dealing with something like that right now a little bit around yeah. the world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, crazy. The fact that they can identify the correct Components. I don't know. Whatever you want. To, the building blocks. Yeah. To yeah, replicate and build and reproduce. And it yes, Anna. It does sound. I apologize Ooh. for the Annie. I know that you don't care it's for like, that. It's, it's your Dave. I get it. it, it um, <laughs> it's fine. But and I like. I love research like this because it's always imagine if you know these tiny robots could target cancer cells or something mm-hmm. and destroy yeah. them. It's always what. You know, the possibility, but then there's always in that background lurking like, man, I could see this going real bad. Yeah, you always focus on like the worst case scenario possibility versus the best case, which, you know, Jeff was just t- talking about, like mm-hmm. the medical applications are very cool. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the word robot is maybe like making this a little bit more scary sounding than it is, because like yeah. you said, you do immediately think of like some sort of Terminator army, which mm-hmm. this is like. Not at all that. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's going to be fine, David. I think it's just going to be like some little mini frogs. It's kind of cute. Well, it's a, it's a yeah. cute story. Uh, yes, this cute story about, I mean, and I get it. You could build new medicines. You could deploy mm-hmm. these xenobots into the uh, oceans to pull microplastics out of them. But what I found it particularly troubling mm-hmm. was the language used by Vermont computer scientist and roboticist Joshua Bongard, who says that, you know, that's what keeps them up at night is the the applications for this, the creating new medicine, pulling microplastics out of the waterways. He says it's not the research because it's contained, vetted by ethics experts, and easily extinguishable. That is so disturbing. It's just like, no, no, no. We'll just easily flip extinguishable. The, yeah, we'll yeah. flip the off switch. And I'm sure that these robots that know how to sustain themselves by building new ones will just go to sleep and never wake up again. Just. Well, I mean, they're not that big. So you should be able to shut them off. Now, yeah. That's how life started. Single-celled organisms blasted in from probably outer space. Whatever. No. <laughs> um, I just found out that, oh, you know, boy. you know, he's concerned about threats from disease, pollution, and climate change. Every once in a while, we, we talk about, you know, how far the technology goes. Sometimes I think you got to rein it in a little bit. 
make sure that there's more than an off switch. Yeah, sure. it wouldn't be worth it to solve climate change because of the risks. Well, climate change. <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, if it's solving something else that's going to end the world and just pushing it off into a different end. Yeah, you know, okay. I don't think. Um, did we miss anything from you, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, Jeff, I don't know if I can follow that one. How? I mean, can we go from the end of the world to Christmas trees? Yes, we can. can please, we? can yes. we? Yes. Yeah. Segue. Because commercialism. It's just the beginning of the end of the world. Oh, my God. (laughs) Somebody, does anybody else want to stand in? Oh, boy. All right. Jeff, what's your in case you missed it this week? So this one actually hit home a little bit because the day after Christmas, we needed a new Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. And my wife was looking for one. She went to Menards, Mm -hmm. and it was going to be very expensive. I couldn't believe, like, how much they were charging for a pre-lit fake Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. How much were they charging? Like, this was like a $300 tree. What? Yeah. It's ridiculous. But looking at this article. Now you know. On our websites. We can see that Christmas trees, both real and the artificial ones, are facing a lot of the same challenges that a lot of other items are in the retail world. Excuse me. Basically, weather has hit the the real trees. Um, And just supply chain disruptions and logistical challenges in terms of enough semi-drivers and all that kind of stuff, getting these products to the store, getting to to the consumer is hitting home. And as a result, big surprise, Christmas tree prices are going through the roof. No way. So if you're looking to either buy a real one or an artificial one, you can see these prices almost three times higher right now this year. And the thing is, because... Of the dynamics of our, obviously, the real trees. Mm-hmm. It takes a while to grow a tree. I don't know if you knew that. Another yeah. thing you can pick up here on the podcast. It takes a while to grow a tree. Um, this is going to last for a couple of years. Like, this yeah. isn't something that's going to be solved overnight. Because we do need to replenish, obviously, the uh, the supply on both ends. So, this is something over the next hand, two, three years. Kind of like the chip shortage on the automotive side. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're seeing this impacting Christmas trees. So, it is kind of interesting when we look at a lot of these dynamics. It's usually a more technical or more, um, I don't know, advanced product that mm-hmm. we see more a bigger impact in terms of some of the supply chain challenges right now. But it's even simple stuff like trees, Christmas trees. No, I uh, when I read this story, I thought about how <clears throat> I always, up until maybe 10 years ago, I was hardcore – you go, you cut down the Christmas tree, so that way you have the smell, and it's all about the ritual of going into the woods and finding it, you know, or the... Did you remember your saw, Clark? Yeah, <laughs> you are No, definitely. I tore it out of the ground with my hand. <laughs> um, but then, um, you know, we came, uh, we came by some secondhand fake trees, and so... We didn't buy it, so I felt better about it. And we used uh, these secondhand trees, and we received another one last year where uh, it was one of the pre-lit trees. And uh, when they gave it to us, it was just uh, – they told us maybe two out of five strands work. Mm-hmm. And we thought, like, the previous tree will just kind of, like, wrap lights around where it wasn't working. And this year, I mean, I felt – I got a little bit more ambitious. I'm like, you know what? I bet I can cut all those lights off. And so I spent the Whoa. day after Thanksgiving that evening – cutting all these lights off of the tree. Whoa. And while it was a bit more than I planned on chewing that night, uh, it looks beautiful. And you can upcycle some of these old trees and kind of give them a new life. True. So that is something that's kind of out there. Um, And, so, and you know, I actually appreciate these upcycled trees more than I did, you know, the uh, real tree. That's true, because he put so much work into it. Wow. It's a real hallmark, hallmark story there, mm-hmm. David. Yeah. It's not a hallmark story. And I would like to to uh, conclude this for by saying my wife, the retail queen, yeah. found coupons and everything else. So the day after, actually, she went and found 
a much less expensive tree of the same size for like a quarter of the price. Mm -hmm. So happy ending. Yeah. Way to crush it, Payron. Yeah. Nice. Mm -hmm. She did. Uh, Do you get, Anna, do you go fake tree or real tree? We have a fake tree. Um, Part of that is because uh, I have three real children Mm -hmm. that are very small and, um, you just got to be careful with what you're doing there. I yeah. don't, like I worry about the um uh like the instability in the tree stand and stuff. I don't oh, want yeah. the tree to fall over and I don't want it to get dry and they would like to put up the tree super early because they get excited about stuff and it's cute cuz yeah. that magic only lasts for very, you know such a limited amount of time. So we put up our tree on Thanksgiving this year, but you can't really do that with a real tree. That then you're yeah. like toasting yeah. your tree by like December 15th. So <laughs> so um, uh fake for now, but I do like real trees mm-hmm. better. Um how quick until you had the first ornament casualty? Uh we we had one while we were decorating initially and my kids like it was like one of those glass balls and it fell down and it exploded because oh, we yeah. have wood floors mm-hmm. and immediately they're just like ah! like everyone is like <laughs> hysterically screaming they try to run towards me because I'm their mom and there's broken glass all over the uh-huh. floor and my husband's like get back <laughs> it was very dramatic so I made them some hot cocoa and let them sit on the couch while I swept it up oh. and then that was it that was yeah. it we just we- had to get it out of our systems you know, uh, we put all the ornaments on uh, with the three-year-old, and then when the one-and-a-half-year-old woke up from his nap, just goes, we have, I thought we had all plastic ornaments within mm-hmm. grasp, grabs the one glass one, and no. just like rips it off the tree and throws it right behind him. And I was like, that was so fast. <laughs> like, he was still, he was still like, had We are ahead of schedule. In. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely your boy. Oh, my goodness. Just shattered both of the antlers off of Rudolph there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, Jeff, is your tree up yet? Like, is it all put yeah, together? Yeah, actually, when I go home, the girls are putting the ornaments on right now. Oh. Oh. I need to be there. Nice. So I'll go home and relax. Yeah. Have a tree. Sounds magical. Have a, an eggnog while you watch it. <laughs> Probably have one of those beers. Oh, <laughs> some beers. Mm. Yeah. Yum. Uh, Eat a big fish. <laughs> in a bun. Just... <laughs> Anyone that has a fish anywhere near Anna now, she's going to be like, watch it now. You're driving. I got to tell you something about <laughs> yeah. that fish. I'll be that person. Uh, Jeff, let's move on to our final thoughts for the week. Uh, what's your final thought? Final thought? <clears throat> I was going to talk about something else, Elon Musk. But I think we've covered him mm-hmm. extensively. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think we're good there. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have one right now. Yeah. I, was, I wasn't expecting you to come to me right away, David. Sorry. I have one. Think about it. Anna, what's your final thought this week? I would like to say happy birthday to my friend, David Mandy, whose birthday is today. Uh, we almost made it. We almost made like, it, but we we're not going to. <laughs> that was so crazy. And in case you missed it, I don't think they remembered. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Do you um, have any big plans for the weekend? Or um, Not really. No. Well, we have a... We have a get together with a couple of friends tonight, which people are already starting to bow out of. So, oh, good. Yep. Yeah. It's, you know, standard um, COVID get together. Mm-hmm. Let's all do it, guys. And you get close. I'm just not feeling good. I got a little tickle and I think we're going to stay home. <laughs> so, you know, hopefully we'll at least have four of us because I'm doing like a two hour swing to drop off the kids for a home that's 30 minutes away from oh, us. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, thank you very much. Uh, no big plans other than everyone that like brought in bagels and cookies and muffins and <laughs> mm-hmm. I made cupcakes. So we got to hit the the carbs after this. Yeah, it is like an old country buffet out there. There is like <laughs> a lot of stuff. Yeah, I have like, 
a salad that I will leave for next week <laughs> as I just try to get through the rest of the cream cheese and bagels because you don't want them to go bad. No, well, you, you can't don't. walk past without grabbing a cookie too, like those cookies that are out there. <gasps> the Ridiculous. Bought. Eric, our producer, thank you very much. He bought my favorite guilty pleasure cookie, which mm-hmm. is the uh, M&M chocolate chip cookie uh, made with all butter. And it's just, which I'm not even sure what it is. What is all butter? It's just delicious. It makes okay. the, oh my God. And uh, same thing. It's like, I'm getting some coffee and a cookie. I got to refill my water and, and a cookie. cookie. <laughs> I need a napkin for my cookie, so I'll get a cookie. What's going on over in the kitchen? I should just check it out. Yeah, oh, while yeah. I'm here. Some commotion. Yeah. Um, my final thought this week <clears throat> is I wanted to talk a little bit about Christmas movies. Because in the office, we have been have a discussion about, you know, everyone puts together these top 10 lists about Christmas movies mm-hmm. this time of year. It's I mean, even though there are thousands of them, there's probably like six good ones. Um, what I wanted to kind of put out to all of our listeners is, can you think of any Christmas movies with a manufacturing or industrial part of the story? Like, uh, I mean, and we get it like anything like Santa has a workshop, you know, I just read Polar Express this morning and as they're traveling into town, it's a factory town because I mean, it was like the most realistic interpretation I've seen Mm -hmm. of Santa's of the North pole where it's like, it's not magical. We're all working in factories. Like we got to make thousands of jacks in the box, um, jack in the boxes. So jacks, jacks, jacks in the boxes. Yeah. Um, so you know we have a couple, like maybe a top three or four, because like Clark Griswold and Christmas Vacation, he's obviously in product development. We brought that mm-hmm. one up. Um, so if any of our listeners have any thoughts or anything comes to mind, we're interested to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know we'll put out the list if there is one greater than three. Um, sometime <laughs> top, later this yeah, month. Top three. Yeah, the top three out of 40,000 Christmas movies that vaguely mention manufacturing. <laughs> Jeff, arrive on a final thought? I'm just going to echo Annie's thought over there about wishing you a happy birthday, big guy. Hmm. That's nice. good. That's good. Yeah, that's- and for my birthday, you gave me the ability to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> the opportunity. All right. Well, before we get out of here, I want to make sure to ask you to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. To email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or me. David. That's the other one. He's got to fix this. At IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, make sure to subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters. Make sure that you get it in your inbox first. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti. Working on my birthday. You're lucky. And this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.